I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where we push the boundaries of audio storytelling. I'm Isabel Vasquez. I think that places like Chicago and Indianapolis. We have something to say. Here you'll find the most inspiring and critical conversations in audio from the Third Coast Conference and beyond. So I'm really excited to see people like the people on this panel and other stations seizing this moment to um, speak with a local voice about what's happening there because it's essential. This season, we're bringing you all the sessions from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, what the most talented writers, producers, journalists, and artists wanted to share with over 800 other audiomakers. You'll go behind the scenes with the producers of some of this year's most captivating work, and each week you can find bonus content in Third Coast's producer news. To sign up, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. Podcasting has shaken up the way producers make audio. Now, listeners can plunge into their app of choice to listen to a treasure trove of narrative stories. And this has presented a unique set of challenges for traditional public radio stations, but also a unique opportunity. How are local radio stations getting into the mix, hooking national audiences on stories from their backyard? And how can audio producers and public media continue to be creative while taking risks and working in uncharted stylistic territory? At the 2018 Third Coast Conference, three outstanding narrative podcasts in public media came together to dive into these questions. The panel was made up of Jeannie Yandel and Jim Gates of Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace from KUOW in Seattle, Erica Aguilar of The Bay from KQED in San Francisco, and Shannon Heffernan of 16 Shots from WBEZ here in Chicago. The panel was hosted by Maureen McMurray, the director of content at New Hampshire Public Radio. And just a quick note, during the conference, the verdict was announced in the trial of Jason Van Dyke, the Chicago police officer who fatally shot Laquan McDonald in 2014. This was the central story of the WBEZ podcast 16 Shots. But despite the breaking news, Shannon took a moment to join the panel and talk about the making of the show. From the 2018 Third Coast Conference, here's Jumping Into the Fray, member stations making new noise in the podcast arena. 
Um, so I'm the director of content at New Hampshire Public Radio, where we um, produce some podcasts outside in Civics 101, and we have a new um, series out called Bear Brook. Um, and as you know, we're going to be talking about member station podcasting with WBEZ uh, 16 Shots. We have KUOW's Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace and KQED's The Bay. Um, but before we get into that, how many people here are currently working in a member station? Um, so I want to start with a story. Um, in February of 2017, Dean Capello um, of WMYC, who is um, sort of le leading the charge with WMYC Studios, came to New Hampshire Public Radio to talk to our board, and he was generous enough to meet with the content makers for lunch. And he talked us through the development of WMYC Studios and where they were going in the future. And I remember I was just sitting there, you know, furiously writing down notes and feeling envious and kind of jealous <laughs> of all of the resources they had. Um, at their disposal and how innovative they were. And there was this one moment in the conversation that really burned into my memory where, um, you know, because it was on the heels of Serial, and I asked him, you know, does WMYC have any plans to do more serialized podcasts or something that's more local? And he said something along the lines of, well, you know, our strategy is we really need to make the next radio lab. We need a juggernaut. And I was like, oh, good, good luck with that. Um, and, you know, I think... Obviously, that's just part of their strategy at the time, and they've made wonderful things since then. But there are a few things that struck me. Um, the first is that I actually worked at WMYC when Radiolab started, and Jad like pretty much worked from a closet down the hall from me, and it aired at like midnight on Sunday on the AM station. So the idea of like that's how you start a jugger juggernaut—you just give it some space to breathe—and the other, you know, I just in that moment felt all of this envy sort of melt away. Because I think he was being honest. They were under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I realized, like, OK, well, we're not competing with NPR. We don't have to make millions of dollars in revenue. And maybe there's a freedom in that to be more innovative. And, and I think there is. And that's why I think that member stations can kind of bring in the next wave of innovation. And we have some people here who will talk to us about how they've done it at their stations. And I'm hoping that people can come away from this with some models um, to be inspired by, to bring back to their station. Um, but I also want to be realistic about that and um, you know, understand that the innovation isn't going to just come from the producers and reporters. But as a system, uh, we really need to make space and room for failure and um, you know, trying to find ways that we can inspire um, each other and hopefully leaders at stations to pick up the mantle because we really have to. Um, so we'll meet the people who will get us there. Um, no pressure on that at all. <laughs> at all. Um, so I'm going to introduce each of you. I'd love you to give like a short description of your podcast and then we'll play a little clip just to whet your appetite. And the first is Erica Aguilar, who's the producer of KQED's The Bay. Thank you for being here. It's really early, but we're really excited to talk about podcasting, especially at local public radio stations, because I'm a total newsie. I love also local news over national news, and so um, being at the Bay has been just phenomenal and just amazing. Um, the Bay is a local news podcast. We uh, just prefer to do news in story form, because there are lots of ways we can give you the news, but stories the way we do it. Um, we release episodes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays that has changed a lot since we first launched, and we can talk about more of that later. Um, each episode takes uh, the big story of the day or of the week, you know, because we are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and 
takes like a twist on the analysis or some fresh commentary, a different angle, or at least goes back and does a lot of explaining, but in a really fun way. Um, they're about 15 minutes uh, or less, and we use a lot of different sound, original tape from the reporters in the field, news clips, council meetings, my favorite. Um, I love meetings. <laughs> um, sound effects, just, it's all like mostly non-scripted, um, and we have this really fun line that I, I truly believe in, which is like every good story starts local, from the big Kavanaugh hearing to the council meeting. All right, let's hear it. Hold on. Hey. hey. Can I call you a little bit? This is John Sepulveda. John hosts the California Report for KQED. And John's been pretty open about having used drugs in the past. In fact, in the middle of our interview, he got a call from someone who's been clean for years. Addiction will drive you to do crazy things. I get that. But the thing that those people need more than anything are other people. A recent report from the Centers for Disease Control shows that more than 5,000 Californians died last year from drug overdoses. That's about 800 more than the state previously estimated. And we should be really worried about this because officials say more and more of those deaths are because of fentanyl a synthetic opioid that can be a hundred times more potent than morphine. Today, what you should know about fentanyl. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. Yay! <laughs> okay, next up, we have Jeannie Yandel and Jim Gates from KQOW. Jeannie is the co-host of Battle uh, Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, and Jim is the, I keep forgetting, senior editor. That's right. Um, so yeah, just give us a brief description of what the podcast is. Uh, so uh, Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, uh, as you might guess from the title, is a podcast about workplace sexism. And uh, we have our editorial stance uh, for the podcast is every workplace is sexist. Um, and we're not going to have a debate about whether that's true or not. So <laughs> we release episodes uh, bi-weekly. The structure is we spend basically part one going through um, uh, research and talking to experts on why one particular facet of workplace sexism, whether it's gender pay gaps or who gets to talk in meetings more to who gets on promotion paths more quickly in white-collar workspaces, how that looks, what that experience is like, what we know about it and the repercussions. And then in part two, we talk about um, ways you can push back on that and ways you can suggest your workplace to try and fix some of these issues because it can't just be on the people having the experience to fix upwards. Um, what am I missing? Well, actually... No. Yes! <laughs> you got it all. <laughs> okay, let's hear a little bit. So I'm thinking about all the little girls I know. I'm thinking about my own daughter mm -hmm. and what kind of future they're all going to have if we don't all get our shit together on gender pay gaps. Well, you know you're not the only one. Our editor Jim is thinking about this right now, too. He's just had a beautiful baby girl. Congratulations, but honestly, without all of us working to fix gender inequity. You're going to be supporting her until <laughs> till the day you die. Yes. <laughs> and then then on, she's going to live with you guys till she's 77. Just yep. so you know. Yep. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's I'm, I'm not really it's laughing. No, I'm, I'm crying inside. It's I know. the damn truth. We've gotten quite good at laughing while crying on the inside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, it's a life skill. I feel like there's a lot of laugh crying in this episode. 
But Jeannie, you gotta laugh, cry, and prepare as best we can, right? Because that's the kind of future we're facing if something doesn't change. So that was uh, my co-host, Eula Scott Bino, who is marvelous and couldn't be here. Um, and one of our expert guests, uh, Ruchika Tulshian, who looked, uh, who's looked at the long-term impacts, particularly in Washington state, but they hold up all over the country of what happens when someone gets paid less than someone else over a 40-year career. Spoiler, it's a total bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and at the end here is Shannon Heffernan, who's a reporter with WBEZ and wasn't at the panel yesterday because you were covering the verdict of the uh, Jason Van Dyke trial uh, for 16 shots. Um, I'm not sure, I'm, I presume lots of you are, are familiar with it, but for those who aren't, if you could just explain the podcast. So 16 Shots is a podcast about the police killing of Laquan McDonald. This was a shooting that happened four years ago in Chicago. And yesterday, uh, he was convicted of second-degree murder. Uh, the podcast started with some episodes exploring the history of the shooting, but also of race in Chicago. We were hoping that, in addition to covering the trial itself, you got a little portrait of some of the long-standing issues here. Hey, let's play a clip. At City Hall, top aides to the mayor were notified within hours of McDonald's death. The head of security for the school district was briefed by police and kept the mayor's office in the loop. At the Chicago Police Department, patrol officers retold the story. Supervisors signed off. The superintendent and his deputies watched the video and went along with the story being told at the scene. And it worked. Within a day of the teenager's death, the story disappeared from Chicago media and the minds of most Chicagoans. We at WBEZ ran a 30-second brief the morning after the shooting. A 17-year-old boy is dead after being shot by Chicago police last night. A Chicago Police Department spokesperson says uniformed officers responded to a call about a man breaking into cars at about 9.45 p.m. in the Chicago Lawn neighborhood. Police say the teen slashed a Chicago police car and then ran away. The officers chased him and then shot and killed the 17-year-old after he refused to drop the knife. No officers were injured in that incident. Laquan McDonald's name wouldn't be heard on our station for another six months. So that's Jen White. She's our fabulous host of 16 Shots. And that's a moment we just wanted to be transparent about how our station was um, a part of the machine that repeated the story that we would later learn uh, would fall apart. Shannon, can you bring us into the early conversations when you decided that you were going to cover this trial, um, what those conversations looked like in the newsroom and the podcast production team? So I think conversations were bubbling up in a few different places. Um, we have a team, the content development uh, unit, who was talking about wanting to do something. Um, they've been doing the making series, like Making Oprah, Making Obama, and I think they were looking for something next for that team to do, and they were thinking about the Laquan McDonald trial. And then there were also some people in the newsroom who knew that this was going to be a big issue for Chicago and also an opportunity to kind of widen the lens and talk about other things in Chicago. So I think it was very serendipitous that those things came together and then we uh, started talking. Was it about eight months ago? Brendan was in the audience. He really helped get this off the ground. February. February, so about eight months ago. Yeah. And can you walk us through the, because I presume the production process, there's only so much that you can 
plan when breaking news has happened, but for, for those early episodes, what the production process looked like? So I really want to give a shout out to 74 Seconds because we learned a lot from them and they were really generous to sit down with us ahead of time and explain how things work for them. And what we decided to do is have three, four actually episodes that we produced ahead of time that were more rich, uh, richly produced. Um, we had a couple of fantastic producers who helped pull that together and then we had three reporters who were working on that too uh, with the host. Okay, great. And um, also for you, Erica, at the Bay, because I know you have um, a production team of just three of you. Day to day, putting out three, um, and the Bay is amazing. I've never even visited the Bay Area, but once I started listening to it, I, I loved it. Um, yeah, how that works, how <laughs> you guys get it done. <laughs> work with I say this every time with every meeting that we have at KQED over and over is that like I love my team, I love my teammates, I love I like working with my host and the producer and the editor because they just make my life fun and, and it just makes making the podcast really fun. Um, I'll say that when we first started, one of the first conversations we had was, um, and it's, it's a thing I ask myself throughout my entire career all the time, is, what are you good at, what do you suck at, and what have you always wanted to do? And each of us sort of went around the table, and I'll say for myself, I was like, well, I'm a bad writer, I think, mostly. Um, I'm okay. That's I'm what Devin, Devin told me. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. And I'm like, I'm really good at sound. I can mix the cap. Yeah, I can mix stuff. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, Devin, this is recorded. Um, and then, um, you know, what I've always wanted to do, I've always wanted to make the news sound cool, like just make it fun. And so we kind of went around the table and did the same thing. And based on that, we figured out our roles and knew where we could lean up one person over the other, because it is just three people just every day, just churning out episodes. Super fun though. <laughs> Um, and for battle tactics, what I found really interesting when I was talking to you earlier is I presumed that it was something that sprang out of the Me Too movement and the Weinstein era, but that you had actually been working on it um, a year before. Um, and for Jim, what did that green light process look like? And you were working on a daily show. I should say, was there a green light process? <laughs> you know, and how did you manage to do that while also being a producer? editor on a daily show. Um, so I think this happens with a lot of stations where somebody has an idea, it's like, I want to do a podcast. And when, so Jeannie had this idea, um, it wasn't called Battle Tactics at the time, but just came to us. And it was actually in the, the throes of the um, presidential run and Trump, I think, was elected. Wasn't that right? It right was. There? Like right it after that. It was soon that, after. Yeah, it was after the inauguration. Out. Well, it was after the inauguration. He yeah. had been inaugurated or he was about to, he had won the election at some point. Then I, that's when I pitched it. Well, yeah. it, it, we hadn't had a, a real um, on-ramp way to get a podcast going yet. But this idea, it came to us and it, was, it's, it, it just seemed perfect from the very beginning. So um, my boss and I, we both you know, gave you permission just to go forth and do it on your own time. Um, <laughs> and so that's basically, it was very informal, but we did hear something in the idea. It's just clear we had to go for it, so. Yeah, so then I spent the next, on my own time, seven months making, uh, making a pilot, getting edit notes on it, making it again, um, you know, which at one point I just, I took 
three days away from my job editing a daily show, our daily noon show, just to get it done. Because my fear was, even though I knew that Jim liked the idea, I knew that our boss liked the idea, my fear was that it would just die because it couldn't get done and there was no real urgency to it. It's, it was an omnipresent problem that was sometimes covered in the news at that point, but there was definitely support there. I also, this was a fun thing I learned when I decided I just needed to take some time away to finish the fricking pilot and stop just like waiting to find time to do it magically. I didn't ask for time off. I just told my boss I was taking three days off. It was revolutionary. I didn't ask. I was just like, I'm doing this. And he was like, okay. Ugh, I don't know why I didn't think of that before. But um, then the, the, you know, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui's reporting on Harvey Weinstein broke. And there was an urgency to this. Like that it was all of a sudden it was like, I wish we had published this thing yesterday. I don't want to say that that awful story helped things, but it certainly helped clarify why a podcast like this would be necessary. And for battle tactics, I mean, that's a subject that has national and, frankly, international, I won't, not appeal, that also seems like a weird no, word to use, but resonance. Yeah. Um, but in the case of 16 Shots, you're, Shannon, you were covering a case that is familiar to a local audience. You're covering that on the broadcast of people who live in the city where it occurred, where the trial is happening but also on the podcast, um, bringing it to someone like me who lives in New Hampshire and is unfamiliar. And, and how did you balance the coverage and the approaches that you took on broadcast versus podcast? I think that's such an excellent question. We had a lot of conversations about who we expected to listen to the podcast and whether it be a mostly local audience or a mostly national audience. Um, I think for me, um, having that lens of a national audience is what we decided to do actually made us better at our local reporting. Because I think when you're actually deep in the weeds of a thing, um, you expect everybody's been in your brain this whole time, knowing all the details, and it really forced us to, to clarify who was who and what mattered and knew what we could leave on the sidelines and not report on. There were moments where like, our local audience needed to know something the podcast audience didn't, and we'd go ahead and put that on the broadcast. But I think it actually... Uh, helped us to take a wider lens on the situation um, and also uh, forced reporters like me who wanted to get into all the details that nobody else needed to know to kind of pull out of that. So it seems like a big difference or a big contradiction of audiences. I don't think it actually is in a lot of cases. Um, and every city has their issues with policing and, and race. So. I think that there is a way that people were able to listen to this podcast, even if they're not from Chicago, and find relevance for their own communities. And, it, and specifically yesterday when the verdict came out, because I do have the opening clip from the podcast, which we'll play, which I think is incredible, but how was it covered on the air? So, I mean, this is, was the biggest challenge for me in doing the podcast, is yesterday we were filing for NPR's national broadcast. We did a two-hour live show on our own station where people could call in, so we were calling into that. We were filing news spots for our own station so something could run in our local newscast. We were calling into the BBC because they were also reporting on this, and we were making the podcast. And each of those audiences has a slightly different thing they need to know, right? <laughs> well, I also, we, we had a lot of help. The, the whole station was on this yesterday, so it wasn't just the podcast team. It was a, a 
big group of incredible people. But the point being is each of those audiences had a slightly different thing they needed to know. You just figure out who needs to hear what. I think for the local audience, a big thing is people wanted to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. People wanted to have conversations with each other. So I think it was a really smart call that our uh, local team made that opening up the phone lines were just going to be key in that moment. And I think what's so interesting is that you did play to the strengths of each platform too, because again, you can't do a call-in show on a podcast. Right. And that's something that's like so vital to member stations um, that we're able to provide that immediate connection. Um, and, and I do want to just play the first two minutes of how you opened the latest podcast episode. Um, because again, this is playing to the strength of podcasting. You couldn't do this on broadcast. We good? Okay, thank you. Will everybody please be seated? Will the four person please rise? Has the jury uh, reached verdicts? We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of second-degree murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, first shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, second shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, third shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, fourth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, fifth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, sixth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with a firearm, seventh shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with the firearm, eighth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with the firearm, ninth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with the firearm, tenth shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with the firearm, eleventh shot. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with firearms, 12 shots. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with firearms, 13 shots. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with firearms, 14 shots. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with firearms, 15 shots. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, guilty of aggravated battery with firearm, 16 shots. We, the jury, find the defendant, Jason Van Dyke, not guilty of official misconduct. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. I, I think that we had spent so much time in the podcast talking about the number of shots. Uh, the jury had looked at each and every wound of each 16 shot. Um, and it still gets me to hear the verdict, right? Like we knew that was coming. We didn't know it was going to be guilty, but we knew that they would go through every single shot. And it still gets me to hear that um, and, and drive home the magnitude of, of what was happening in the courtroom that day. Again, it just speaks to the 
risks and the innovation, the intimacy that you can get through podcasting. And, and for Erica, you know, I, I think there are a lot of stations that are doing podcasting of, um, you know, local stories with national appeal. Um, there aren't so many that are truly going for um, a very local audience. And wondering if you think that there are opportunities for innovation in that in speaking to just this one city and how you've navigated it on the Bay. I personally find, again, because I'm this local news fan, um, I personally find speaking to a local audience very exciting. Um, one example of how the Bay has done that, um, we did an entire episode based off of tw a Twitter thread that was going on and housing, because housing is a big deal in the Bay. Even though, you know, there are multiple cities out in the Bay Area, but um, that housing Twitter thread just went viral, and it was literally like a list of how, like, how much each house in each city was going for, you know, and it's like half a million here, and 800 here, and like this is what it was last, and it was just like a thread of just random statistics about housing, and people just started like interacting with it on Twitter. And then something that like went viral to the Bay Area, but not maybe national, and what we were able to do is bring that um, the Twitter writer, she was, um, I think she wrote, she wrote for Curved, I believe, I can't remember exactly, but um, it was really just nice to be able to have that conversation with the local audience, because what they were doing at that time was just like, yes, I want to lament, you know, and I want to express myself, and it was a really cool way to do it on podcast. However, the entire nation is having a housing crisis, not just the Bay Area, but it's just acute there. And so it was, it, that that's something a lot like our other local podcast episodes about leaving the Bay Area and housing that has been, um, I think, relatable to a national audience. And this is why we say all the time at the Bay, is like every good story starts local. And do you think there are different engagement opportunities? I'm looking at battle tactics um, with a podcast audience versus broadcast. I mean, I, you know, in, in my experience, yes. So the, um, you know, the, I worked on daily shows for, I mean, most of my career, like 14 years, I've been doing daily shows out of the newsroom and, uh, our engagement, there would sort of be this occasional big deal live event that happened once in a blue moon, but largely our engagement was asking listeners was Collins, right. Or like, you know, send in a voice memo or, you know, Facebook comments or something, but it was limited to kind of the thing we were doing on the air that day. We felt like magical unicorns if we were able to actually plan two days ahead and be like, let's get people to call in on something we're going to do tomorrow, right? But that was like the, sort of the scope of our engagement. Um, but with battle tactics, you know, and this isn't necessarily because of us, but we have a community engagement team at KUOW, um, which is amazing. And I know not every station has that kind of resource, but they, you know, from the beginning sat down with us and we mapped out live events um, where Eula and I would go and we would have an onstage conversation with someone. Uh, we would have audience Q&A, which has been super robust. Um, and the, you know, the goal of those meetings, of those, uh, those live events is not to make content. Like, something might come out of it, but the goal is to reinforce this idea that, you know, we're all in this together and we're a community and we're trying to solve these problems together. Um, and we have a really, we have a, a private Facebook group that you have to ask to join. 
because we want to make sure that the people who are part of that group feel comfortable talking about their experiences at work, which is not always a very comfortable or safe feeling thing to do. Um, you know, we have close to 800 members now and they're really engaged. We have used some of their stories and comments with their permission um, on the show. And um, mostly our engagement, I think, is focused on like just making sure we can have an ongoing dialogue and just keep talking about this stuff so it doesn't just sort of live in these, you know, 25 minute episodes we release every other week. Yeah, and I think it's, it's key to then use the, the um, people <coughs> having comments and things like that and actually using those comments and, and a, I'm working with listeners and so it, it's not just talking into a black hole, you're right. actually making it part of the programming. So I think we've done a really good job at that. We had, a, we call it our mailbag episode. Um, which was really effective. We had people who had questions and we had an expert there who was able to give you answers to those questions and um, kind of finish that circle. And I think um, that's what we are doing. And then it, it matches the mission of the state station, which is to reach out and you know um, have people come inside, have outside voices come in. So yeah. yeah. And there's also, I mean, I feel like I should mention this and our marketing team would is like, sitting and waiting for me to say this right now. Um, they're sitting in Seattle like, mention the newsletter, but we have a <laughs> newsletter. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I know very little about how that works. I'll just cop to that. But there's a, like, there's a more than 45% open rate, which I guess is a big deal oh, in the world good. of newsletters. Like, yeah, it's apparently an indication of high engagement with the material. So that's really <laughs> exciting too. Um, and, and yeah. Jim, you're the, the boss man over there in charge of podcasting. Boss man. I'm also a boss lady. Um, but I think the, the problem is we often, you know, when you're just in this industry, it, there's so much focus on download numbers and what's your CPM and blah, blah, blah. I mean, do you think that member stations need new different metrics for success? And I'm going to, you know, show my hand here. I think engagement is one of those. Yeah. And how are you measuring success at um, the station? Well, that's what it's all about, right? It's like, um, what is success? So we have to kind of put that down. And I, you know, looked around um, at what other stations were doing, and we came up with this number, like 50,000 downloads per episode. That's success. And, but it's really hard to reach, especially when you're starting out. And I, um, I think there are other metrics for success that um, I'm just trying to articulate at our station, which is the, the emails that we get, it's the interaction on our Facebook group, it's um, our public events um, that are you know highly attended, and it's looking at that and in addition to our numbers. Like I feel like you know somebody writing in and saying, the advice you gave me about asking about um, my salary and what my coworker makes, that helped me get a raise. That is profound and it's a really, it's a great example of somebody who's really um, getting something out of our podcast and that to me is much better than a thousand people downloading it. So it's like, my job is to articulate that up and say, no, it's, it's more than just the 50,000, it's, it's much deeper. And so that's where I'm at, we're at as a station, I don't know where it's gonna land. Um, hopefully they'll be open to it. But, and, yeah. and I think it's worth mentioning, too, if anyone needs to go back to their bosses. I mean, they're, it, we have a case study at our station, and also there are studies about it, that that does translate into donor dollars. It increases membership the more engaged uh, an audience is. They had, our membership people showed us this, like, I don't know, it was like ladder to giving. And, um, you know, it 
in HPR, we have two podcasts, um, and, and one has a large audience. We're able to get, you know, advertising dollars through it, but the other is a touch smaller, which is outside in. It's a more um, niche audience, but highly engaged, um, really connected to the host of the show, Sam Evans-Brown. And when we did um, a fundraiser, it's just kind of a trial, see who would give $10 to these podcasts. Like, it, it really outperformed the other one, not to say that there aren't other opportunities with that podcast too, but that you can capitalize on um, a meaningful engagement in your audience um, that can continue to support the podcast. Can I just say that like, podcasting is about somebody who's coming and choosing your show to listen to, right? So it's not this broad cast audience, you know, where you're just sending out information and you're hoping somebody will just consume it and then give you money because of it, right? Or um, like your page or whatever. They're coming to you because they know what they're going to get. They're coming because they want the latest news on the trial or, you know, the analysis there, um, which means that, like, you can talk directly to them and you're also creating a habitual um, relationship with them, which also turns into, you know, um, engagement in dollars there later, which is another, all that just to say, like, GMs in the room, like, just do it. Are there any GMs in the room? No. Sorry. <laughs> Have them listen to this. You know, I, I was thinking too, um, for people who are making podcasts, what you really need to think about is that engagement. Um, John Barth from PRX was here yesterday and talking about that's the next thing you really have to look at because if, and I'm quoting him, if you can show your boss a picture of 400 people in a room attending your event, that is very powerful. So if you can build that in, and I think if you can also do something that's relevant to today, like uh, 16 shots or what, what we're doing, um, what, what we're all doing, um, I think that will serve you well because then you become, like your local news, it, it, you become the source where national is going to come to you. And so we've had like, you know, NPR, and it's great to hear BBC is getting in touch with you. They're coming to you to interview your reporters. And for a general manager to see my reporters hitting the national or international stage, it's, you can't avoid that. And so it, it, you're just creating that momentum for other stuff. You, we can't do everything is alive right now. I think you have to start with something that's, I love that podcast, but it's like, <laughs> um, it's something that's really um, important to your station right now in a newsworthy way. I think that's how you get the momentum going to build your podcast. Well, and, I, and something you were mentioning about the national audience that I think is important to know. I can't tell you the mo number of times I've been told, if you want to further your career, you need to be moving to New York. Um, or to, to, to the coast. And um, I think that places like Chicago and Indianapolis, we, we have something, <laughs> St. Louis, <laughs> we, St. Louis, we have something to say. And people coming in to cover this trial later, they can do a good job. I'm not slamming that reporting, but their perspective is going to be different. So I'm really excited to see people like the people on this panel and other stations seizing this moment to um, speak with a local voice about what's happening there because it's essential. Yeah. And, and I think um, that's something that's very dear to my heart because I work um, New Hampshire Public Radio. We're the first in the nation primary. We have our state of democracy reporter out there. Um, but I you know, moved there four years ago and experienced uh, the primary for the first time. And it's just this crazy Thing. You have, you know, the access that you have to presidential candidates. We had, at the time, and still do a really robust newsroom. People with deep knowledge of New Hampshire, the primary, assigned to each candidate. Um, at that time, we weren't 
built for podcasting. And so they were covering them and then it would just go into features and sort of, you know, go off into the ether. And then when it came down to primary day, NPR swoops in and I, and I was like, that will never happen again. We are owning this story. Right. And everyone should feel empowered to own the stories in their communities. Um, I, I would actually like to talk a bit about the newsroom um, and their, how, how they could be tapped to um, create more podcasts at member stations. And Erica, what is your relationship with the newsroom at KQED now? And do you think that there could be more opportunities to work with them to do projects like 16 Shots? Yeah, I, I think so, definitely. Um, I feel like the Bay is integrated into the newsroom because we use a lot of the newsroom reporters to tell these stories. We use reporters and journalists to tell stories because, well, they're just good storytellers, right? Um, and also because they have great tape, and tape is something I love playing with. Um, but the way I think the Bay can grow, and the way we've been trying to grow even, um, is going and working with partnerships in um, the local newspaper. Like we've gone to the Mercury News and we've done workshops with them and like, here's how you can take your iPhone and then um, and do interviews with them and bring it back and we'll, we'll make you sound great. <laughs> um, we did it with the East Bay Express. Alternative weeklies are really fun to work with because they kind of have that voice that we're looking at. A lot of the Bay looks at the news in the local area with an identity lens. Identity is just a big thing for me personally, but also for the folks who work on the Bay. And identity is, is, is for me, broadly defined as like, you know, where are you from? To all the way from like, yeah, I'm totally Latina, you know? And so it's just really fun to be able to like, I feel we even KQED's news leaders have told us, consider the Bay Area and the, and the writers there as your newsroom, which has been really cool to work with. It's, it's, so it's not just like KQED reporters, but having KQED reporters in-house and knowing that they have expertise, like we have some really great transportation writers, um, some really great criminal justice reporters, and the podcast allows for them to explain those really technical things like police, po the police policies and legal, um, uh, just legal analysis, all the way to like, workplace HR issues. And I think that also is an opportunity for member stations that I'm seeing more and more of, um, and of not doing it alone, of not being siloed, of looking at organizations in your community, um, whether that be media, we are going to be partnering with the New Hampshire Historical Society on a local version of Civics 101. Um, and K KUOW has already started doing that. Is, how is that part of your strategy? You mean the um, like Harkin model, or no? Just like looking to, you know, get talent from outside the building. I'm thinking specifically of Battle Tactics. That um, the co-host yeah. that you work with isn't a didn't come from the building. Yeah, where where we started from. Um, everybody wants you know general managers are always talking about innovation. We want to do innovation, and um, we did get money from the board. Our general manager had it. We called the general manager fund, and. Um, I had wanted to do podcasts, and so I made that clear. And so she was going to um, give some money, and I um, wrote up a budget for what it would cost to produce these things. So I gave them hard numbers because you have to speak their language. Um, but it pretty much started out as just me, and then we had a, a contest where we had people um, submit ideas for podcasts, and we chose three and piloted those. Um, but I couldn't do that alone, So, but everybody else, people like Jeannie, they were busy doing other things, and so um, I hired a freelance um, producer, sound designer, 
to come in and together we kind of built this podcast and then we had some success and then we were able to hire a full-time producer and then we just hired a second full-time producer and now we have an assistant producer. Um, and But to still reach outside of the station, um, we bring in like Eula, Scott mm -hmm. Bino is um, from outside of the station, but she brings a, 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 a just a fresh voice to the show. Um, so we've, we're building like that and our hope is not to just ride on the backs of freelancers, but start that way, create permanent jobs and grow, grow and scale that way. So it's been so far working. Yeah. And I would like to say that when like, so Eula is a fresh voice, you know, for like our broadcast public radio audience, but she's not a fresh voice for people who listen to podcasts in Seattle. Um, right. She created and is the interview lead for a show called Hella Black, Hella Seattle. And I was a fangirl of hers for, I mean, months before I even thought it would be a possibility that she would do this. And I asked her to work marry me maybe 20 <laughs> minutes after meeting her to do this thing. Um, you know, the part-time producers we've brought in, Maya Aina um, was also not of the public radio world. Um, this is another benefit of thinking about partnering and looking at podcasting. There are people in all of your communities who are already making podcasts and who can bring experience and awesomeness that just haven't come up in the same system as you. And we've, like on Battle Tactics, we've surely benefited from, from, think, from, from that. We've benefited like nobody's business from Eula, from having Maya be part of the team. And, We're really lucky. And part of our mission of the station is to bring in diverse voices and reach bigger audiences. So I'll, I, I take that and turn that and, and say, okay, if you wanna do that, then you've gotta do this. And so it's like leveraging your own mission station statement to, to do what you wanna do. And, and I'd like to play a clip from Battle Tactics that I think um, showcases this of um, how that just enriches programming. And this one was from the Wage Gap episode. White women make more than black men. I didn't see that coming when we talked about the gender gaps. We're talking averages here, but this really hurt hard when Ijeoma said this, because my partner is a black man. When we use that 77 cents on the dollar framing, we're overlooking the fact that he's not bringing home white man money. He's not even bringing home white woman money. So many black men are completely removed from workforce entirely due to our mass incarceration system and racial profiling and racial bias and job discrimination. All that puts an extra burden on black women's shoulders. My 54 cents needs to go even further. I mean, if all we do is highlight the fact that women overall make less than white men, we miss so much of this problem. There you go. Um, so I'm, I don't want to run out of time before talking about sustainability, because I think that's a, a real issue um, at my station, at a lot of stations, um, that to get to a point where a podcast isn't seen as extra, that it's like, oh, somehow you get this gift and you get to be creative, and then you go back to your real job. Um, and Shannon, at WBEZ, so, um, you know, you're doing 16 shots. You're also reporting. Um, Jen White, I, I believe, is she still hosting the morning show? She hosts the morning show sometimes. She also does um, does Anchorage coverage for us. She does, she like does everything, so. Yes. <laughs> and, did you, and did you learn things about um, appropriate uh, work balance through this that you think may be changing at WBEZ that I, I know like it's sometimes hard to under, know how, how much work it's going to take at the outset, but yeah. is sustainability a concern? Well, I think 
for um, a long time leading up to the podcast, we were both recording um, on our regular beats and doing the podcast. But in the end, um, we were lucky enough to have a newsroom where people stepped up and took it off our plate. So for the last few weeks, maybe longer than that, my sense of time is skewed right now. Um, <laughs> we were only focusing on the podcast, and that was a real gift. I honestly don't know if it would be sustainable for us to keep doing what we've been doing on 16 shots if this was going to be like a weekly podcast. I don't, I don't think we could do that. But I do think there is a value in short-run podcasts to being like, this is important, now we're going to throw a bunch of resources at it, and then you're going to pull back and you're going to go do some beat reporting and then be ready to recognize the opportunity the next time there's a time to do that. So um, I think that, that model can work too. Um, I'll say that uh, the Bay has learned a lot of lessons <laughs> on sustainability because um, we started off in, uh, we launched officially in March. We were doing a lot of prototyping actually before that. Um, and we launched four days a week and we were intending to do five and then now we're three days a week. <laughs> and all of that came to the fact that like, it was just really, really, really hard. And we also had like ideas, standards and wishes of how we wanted the bay to sound and what we want it to be. And in order to do the things that we wanted, we had to be alive. And so we just went from four days to three days and then I'll say that we also like changed which days because we were like, well, which days would be best for us? You know, Mondays are terrible for me <laughs> or something, you know? And so we've changed our schedule, or release schedule from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to um, now we're Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but all to say that we've changed our schedule so many times and our audience keeps coming with us. Like our numbers don't change, which is amazing. I'm so grateful for that. Well, I think what it means, is it goes back to this idea that we were talking about earlier, is that our podcast audience is, is engaged and loyal, and they will come with you because they're interested in what you're doing. So you just have to communicate a message to them, like, hey, yeah, we're, now, now we're going Monday, Wednesday, Friday, come, you know? And just like the way we did that here, the third coast, we're like, no, we're going there. Now we're going here, now we're going here. And we all still came. So it's the same thing. It's like, you know, podcasting audiences are just really fun and loyal as long as you're having fun with them and you're communicating where you're going with it, but also making sure that you tell them, we can't provide this content for you. Uh, you know, if, if we're exhausted all the time. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's also important that same flexibility of the podcast audience that, frankly, management should be that way too. And um, at New Hampshire Public Radio, when we first started um, Outside In, which is um, now bi-weekly, pretty heavily enterprise reporting, uh, sound rich, uh, Civics 101, which is also becoming more uh, narrative and sound rich, when we did both of the, and we also had like another podcast called 10 Minute Writers Workshop, um, we were doing a daily um, magazine program that ran from two to three. It was um, like a local culture program. Actually, it was strange. It was locally produced, but we covered national things. But and it was only a team of six doing all of these different things, plus like this live writers event that we do maybe ten times a year. And it, you know, we wanted to protect the baby that was outside in um, that we saw was special, and we just had to have like tough conversations about really looking. At, and, and going to the mission statement of the station, our strategic goals, and saying, does this daily two to three hour, uh, one hour show that's talking about national issues, that's produced locally, um, that's at a time when the audience, the AQH is low, is that really the best use of our time and talent? Um, and it was a tough conversation. It was like maybe a year and a half, two years that we wound up cutting that down to one day a week. And then eventually now it's still there, but we 
fill it with on-demand first products. Like we still air all of our things, but we're not, we, because we have robust newsroom and all of this, we decided that that wasn't worth the investment. Brian, I just wanted to say, um, going back to your baby idea, like that's what we say at the Bay too. It's like the Bay is our baby. You know, three people came together and had a baby. It's called the Bay. <laughs> and we do everything to protect the Bay or the baby, right? So like one of the other things that we do with sustainability is like compromise. You know, two, two producers, um, two people on the team are like, nah, I like this edit and we're going to do this. Person says, going with you, mom, <laughs> you know, like going with you. And also we do, we say this thing all, all the time, it's like hashtag good enough, hashtag good enough. Like, and, and mostly it's been told to me, you know, cause I'm like, oh, but I, you know, I, I, I just want to add an eighth multi-track, please. <laughs> and they're like, no, Erica, it's like too late. No, hashtag good enough because the baby won't be here if you can't um, you know, provide for your baby. It's so important to have someone on your team who's able to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so important. Yep. Because you need to put it out at some point. You need yeah. to put it out at some point. <laughs> Can't be too precious. Um, well, I want to give time for questions. Thank you. <laughs> hey there, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with the rest of this session in just a minute. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we're back with the Q&A from Jumping into the Fray from the 2018 Third Coast Conference. What advice would you give independent podcasters who want to pitch you an idea and think it would actually be a perfect fit for you? So I wonder if you could talk about that. Thanks. I, I think, well, looking at whatever place you're going to pitch at, look at what they're looking for. And again, like the mission station statement of that um, station and then try to um, fit that, those um, guidelines. What, what we have at the station, we've now, since um, Jeannie came and pitched this idea, we now have this business plan that's on wrap that we have a, a matrix basically that we have, it's a grading sheet where we have specific things that we would like in a podcast. They don't all have to have them. Um, and I will give that out freely to whoever is pitching because I want, we want, see, that's the thing. We want a successful podcast. We don't want to say no. Um, and then we literally grade it so we, we are all speaking the same language and it's not just arbitrary like, oh, that sounds good. No, it's like, does it, is it something of Seattle? Is it something that's different than what we're doing? Is it something that fits a need? Um, that, those kinds of things. So there's real concrete 
things that we can look at and then give back to the producer and say yes or no. And if no, this is why. So from the outside, I think I would just go to the station and just get a real sense of what they want. Or if you come to us, I'll tell you exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, for the Bay, um, when I was working at KUT in Austin, um, we'd always say, like, this is a KUT story, or even at Marketplace, it's like, this is a Marketplace story. So when I'm at the Bay, I always think about, what is a Bay story? Um, we do have these, like, four or five things, like, it has to directly and uniquely affect the Bay Area, because this is our audience. Um, we try to master the, the short form narrative, like everything has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And it can be drawn through a narrator, um, the narrator could be the, the storyteller, or it can be chronological. Um, council meetings are awesome for chronological, just FYI. <laughs> Love council meetings. How many times did I get to say that? Yes. Um, it has to be as timely as possible, or it has to be an urgent idea, right? That's the news cycle thing. Um, there should be like a twist or a point or a question, like a fresh take on it. And then usually that fresh take is about identity. And, and again, identity is broadly termed, um, but like that mix, if we can hit all of those five pieces, um, that is what a Bay episode really uniquely is and we aim for. Well, thanks again. Um, I work for Montana Public Radio, so we're a tiny newsroom in a rural state with a low population. Um, and uh, we have limited resources and we're just dipping our toes into podcasts, but we're doing only limited run, very issue oriented ones. So our first was invasive muscles and our second is super fun. Um, but there's this sort of working theory at the station that we can carry that general podcast audience from one issue and season to the next. And I'm wondering what your thoughts or experience with that concept are. I guess, it, is it the same show or is it? It's a different reporter, different host, different show. Yeah, I mean, I find for four hours, they're quite distinct. We try to do, um, actually, this is a perfect example of, so we have outside in environmental show, um, you know, Soundridge, then we have Civics 101, which is really education-facing towards students, and we just put out um, our first newsroom podcast called Bear Brook, which is about uh, this New Hampshire cold case that inspired um, people to use uh, open source ancestry sites and DNA uh, to catch the uh, Golden State Killer. Actually, the first time they did it was this case in New Hampshire, um, but when I was thinking about and I think this answers the question of like cross promotion. I didn't cross promote it on Civics 101 because I'm like, first of all, that would like terrify eighth graders, and um, <laughs> and it just didn't make sense. And I think we're trying. At least we tried to with outside in, with the in being that the host, the reporter for Bear Brook, actually took over the beat of Sam Evans Brown, who's the host for Outside In, and we were like there were barrels found in a state park, maybe you'll like it, you know? So I, I think they're quite, it's worth a try, but they're um, kind of distinct. And I don't, I actually think that's a good thing. It means you're broadening your audience, you're diversifying the audience, and um, yeah, it's kind of capturing what you can do um, that you can't on a broadcast. I'd be curious to know where that theory came from because, um, <laughs> what an expressive face you just made. Because um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I mean, my understanding is that, you know, is the way you think about broadcast is you are speaking to a general audience who is there because they're sort of down with the overall public radio brand, right? Um, and then they might sort of be specifically into that thing you're doing in that hour, but podcasting is, um, you know, you are thinking about, or you should be thinking about 
a speaking to a specific audience, deciding who that audience is, and then trying to talk to them. So I'm not, sh- I mean, you might have some people come with you because they're into Montana public radio and they're just down to consume whatever comes out of that newsroom, but I would not bank on that. You know, when we create podcasts, we use design thinking. We were part of um, PRX's uh, project Catapult, which is um, something I hope they do. They just um, had the latest round, but it was extremely helpful. And we learned about design thinking, which was um, looking at the need that your podcast would fill, if there is a need. Um, And then who is your um, persona? Who's the person who you're doing this for? And that's with Battle Tactics, you can quickly tell us um, who we're making this for, but it helps us guide the stories we choose and also it articulates to the station what we're trying to do. Yeah. I think it's also interesting if you do a short run series to think about like, okay, where does our audience want to go next? So we've told them the arc of this thing. What do they need to know mm-hmm. now? And maybe that's a different series. I don't I would listen to like what St. Louis Public Radio has done with uh, We Live Here. Um, that's something, I don't know how they conceived of it, but that's something you can imagine having been a short run series that they have continued to move along with. In the dark? In the so, dark. Yeah. It, yeah. That could have been a short-run series, and it would have been brilliant as a short-run series. But then, so what's next? Also yeah. think about that when choosing a name for your podcast, I maybe. Know. How lucky <laughs> are they? <laughs> I think isn't there a strength, too, in the stream? Like, uh, There Goes the Neighborhood did this, um, where it's like There Goes Neighborhood, nine-part series, I believe. And then they just t- took that and then did the next podcast. And so you just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Brooklyn to to the LA area. But then, like, um, just local podcasting in California, like, I'm a big fan of Yosemite Land and what Capital Public Radio doing in in Sacramento. Yeah, that's right. Because, like, you know, he just basically... And this goes back to, like, integrating podcasts into your newsroom. Ezra uh, David Romero over there is an environment reporter, and he just took what he loved and said... I'm just going to go hard on Yosemite Land. I'm just going to go right into it. And um, I don't know if he wants me to say, well, you know what? We said it in the podcast. He's doing the second season, and he's just going to go to a different location. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just playing to those strengths of what you can offer from your newsroom. And then I think what Jeannie said is, like, talk directly to that audience. And don't be afraid that it's, like, that one audience, right? Because that's valuable, too. Like, the reason that we started the Bay, um, or at least I'm a partner at the Bay, is because I'm bored of NPR News. <laughs> Sorry, but like I just don't listen sometimes, and that's just because I just I just want to be I want the news to be presented to me in a certain way, and I know that's not true of everybody else, maybe in this room or who are the listening audience, but it is who I am, and mm, that's okay. I mean, especially in podcasting. And I'd say just one more thing, and then I'll get your question um, that. You know, I think you can try to see if there's a way to carry the audience over, but I think something that's really important is, um, and, and this is something that I'd like to see more of um, everyone here, just sharing tips on how to build audience, and that's something that we discovered that we were all calling the same people, which is really inefficient, <laughs> but it's like, okay, you do this, you write to this person, iTunes, NPR one, da, 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 and then just create that um, sort of onboarding launch process and just rinse and repeat every time. And that's something that um, once you get the data, you can kind of project more accurately what um, your next project you can expect from audience numbers. Hi. So um, you said something that really was akin to what I was thinking of earlier as you were talking about like maybe inf- like a potential influence on the way that we present news. Um, 
And I've been thinking a lot about this, the way that podcasts can influence newscasts. And when I say newscasts, I don't just mean spot news, although that certainly should be taken into consideration, but also features that we do or different programming that we do on broadcast. I mean, have you found, I mean, you know, you said like you kind of got bored of the way the news is presented. Yes. And to me, that says, and, and it's something that I think a lot about in our newsroom, I'm at WLRN, you know, we shouldn't be presenting the news that way just because it's in the format of the newscast. Absolutely. We should be taking a lot more pages from podcasts. And actually, I went to the Art of Noise, I don't know if anybody was there yesterday. We should be taking a lot more pages from the past <laughs> where there was a lot more experimentation and creativity happening within the framework of, I mean, NPR had something that they called like the Bell Labs of NPR, I mean, sort of in quotes. Um, which you know doesn't exist anymore, but this is what that is now. So I wonder if you're seeing like the ways that the work that you're doing is actually influencing what news what your newsrooms are doing. I would say, Maureen, you said like you couldn't do in a broadcast format what you did at the top of 16 Shots, the, the most recent episode. And you episode. could. I you would could. Hope, it is a false dichotomy. Thank right, you for calling like, me out on really, that. Really, really, <laughs> sorry, you can't no, do that. But I mean, like, as an editor, I, as an editor, like I would say, would. let's find room for that broadcast. You know? I'm getting so excited when you're talking because I think there's this trick where you hear people say like, oh, oh, what about podcasts is allowing us this freedom? Mm -hmm. It's because it's new, right? So people are like, right. oh, it's new. So now we can do this thing. Like we've had, we've had the power all along, right? Like, <laughs> and, and I think that the excitement of seizing this moment is just that it's like a trick in our brains. It's like, oh, you're doing something new. So let's, let's have fun again. Right. And um, I think that should be contagious. Let's spread it everywhere. Yeah. Our reporters are starting to, like, I think, play with their features or even their spots. Um, we, we, they'll go back and use historical tape just to go like, yeah, you know, the whole idea of going from a national audience. And you're like, well, people probably need to figure out how we got to a place where San Francisco is throwing out their lottery system for education and how to place kids in schools. So we go all the way back. We just go back because we can, you know? Um, and I think, like, our reporters are starting to use that historical archive tape there. They're being okay with throwing in, like, these mini two-ways that I, like, throw into the episode. Why? Because it makes them sound human as a reporter. I'm like, I want people to know that our reporters are just going up to people and saying, hey, can I, can I do an interview with you? Well, it, you know, it's a story about this. And, you know, it's a really just, it's creative, but it's also very transparent, and I'm seeing it there. And the best way I know that is our reporters will come back to us. Like, uh, we have one reporter, Sam Harnett, and we worked with, and he's like, I have to do my feature now, and I don't want to do my feature. <laughs> it's like, can we just, like, play what you guys did? Because that was the best version of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then he started pitching it to, like, NPR and This American Life and other places, because he's like, this is it. Like, this is the way I wanted it to sound. I, you know, you played the tape yesterday where you're doing the carpool thing. Oh, I think yeah, that was yeah, a yeah, yeah. perfect example of, could we play that? Yeah. I, I just, okay, I think that it. gets to your point of the creativity. Just to set it up a bit, like, um, this is uh, our transportation reporter and editor, Dan Brecky. Um, we, we needed to find a way to talk about propositions. Um, it's about transportation. Um, Devin Kadiyama, our host, came up to me and we're like, how are we going to do this? And I was like, go to his house and come to work with him in any way possible. And they carpooled. Dan and I get into the first car in a line of cars and ask if it's cool if we record. Luckily, they're listening to KQED, of course, and they say sure. All right. <laughs> yeah, actually, could you turn it down? Thanks. 
So I'm, I'm oh, Devin Kadiyama, by the way. Oh, yeah, hey. Nice Hi. to meet you. Hey. This is Dan Brecky. Dan Brecky, uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, uh, I'm David Zlatchin. David? Uh-huh. And Tiana Wertheim. All right, so we're in the car. We're on the casual carpool with uh, Dan Brecky, David, and Tiana. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you all know about the bridge toll um, on the ballot measure? The, uh, the ballot the measure? measure three? I don't. No, nope. nope, me neither. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so here we go. Okay, here we go. We're going to tell them a little bit about it. First, uh, do you know how often voters are asked to raise bridge tolls at the ballot? This is the third time in the last 30 years. There was Regional Measure 1 in 1988 that doubled the toll from $1 to $2. There was a second bridge toll increase on the ballot in 2004 called Regional Measure 2, and I believe that raised it from, um, it went from $2 to $4 eventually. I mean, we're going back, 88, right, to, to understand the proposition now. But we all did it, like, in the field, which is a really fun way. I'll say that when we, we started the Bay, or even started thinking about the Bay, um, I think we studied really hard. We studied what the Daily was doing really hard. We studied what Fox was doing. Um, personally, I studied um, Millennial. Um, I studied, well, just a fan of rap music or sound design, but anyway. Um, but we studied what a lot of other folks were doing, and we decided on what as our strength was, is that we're all reporters. We, we all have... We're fantastic with Marantzes, and we're like, let's just use them in the field. Like, we'll wield our mics everywhere and make a podcast. Um, so a lot of our stuff does tend to be out in the field. Um, and then sometimes we do stuff in studio, but uh, that's the, that's the that entire episode is out in the field. This kind of follows up on the last two questions. Um, I found in particular this year, every short-run series that KCRW was putting out, I would subscribe to. Not necessarily because of the content, but because I liked how they cut tape. I like how they score it and sound design it and had the feel. So like for me, it sort of really got into that. I like the feel of the shows that KCRW does. I'm curious if that enters your calculus at all. Yes. When you're thinking about not just an individual show, but sort of going back to questions, the larger sense of programming and, and things that are going on on podcasts, if you, if you just have any of that in your calculus beyond the, the quality of the content and sort of the actual feel of the sound and show. Yeah, actually, we're um, talking right now about music and having more of a, um, um, branding's not the right word, but like a brand book where you're um, looking for a similar kind of sound um, th so that you know that when you're hearing one of our podcasts, you're hearing one of our podcasts. We do the same thing with our art. We have an art designer on staff now, so everything has a look that matches a particular, a particular color scheme, a palette, and like, so we're thinking to that level. So, so to answer your question, yes, but at the same time, I also want things to be distinct, so it's like trying to find, play that middle ground. Yeah. Uh, for me, yes, I mean, that's the whole reason I'm in audio, otherwise I'd be a print journalist, because I love journalism, but um, yeah, like, I love taking, I tell reporters, give me all of your tape, like, all of it. <laughs> I take it and I mark the crap out of it and I just start, I, I, I transition with music sometimes if I have to, but mostly I transition with non-script and, and try to see how I can make scenes out of reporters' audio tape. And, and that's another th way that we've integrated ourselves into the newsroom because we act, I think, like as a giant editor where a reporter comes in and they're like, I can't, I don't know, I don't know, like, do I start the story here? Do I start the story here? And I'm like, hmm, give me your tape. Let me figure this out for you. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a way to, to be able to find the right 
angle they're interested in, the right tape, and we are also, or at least I am, thinking about how music can act as an identity, like if you've seen in this piece, right? It's like, no, nobody knows about propositions. And so I was like, all right, let's put this really, like, okay, we're going through this music, da-da, 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 right? And so, um, I don't know, uh, music influences my life, and, and so I try to use that a little bit and uh, with journalism and, and mixing all that stuff, so yes. And, and you know, for us, um, that certainly the sound design and quality is really important, and we are fortunate enough to, you know, really experiment with it on outside in. So by the time we um, did our Bear Brook, which was, you know, came from the newsroom that we created an editorial team um, that had some people from the newsroom, some people from the production team. Um, the project leader was Taylor Quimby, who's a wonderful sound designer. And um, so we were able to marry those sensibilities in a really interesting way that if, I think if it had just come from the newsroom, it wouldn't have sounded like that because they didn't necessarily, they don't have, aren't able to work those chops in their day-to-day uh, -day work, but also just like the rigor of the journalism we, you know, back then didn't necessarily have. So I think, um, yeah, just finding the people who are really good at sound at your station and people who are great journalists and just getting them together is, um, can create really wonderful things. Can I just say one more thing? Is that like, I, I think with podcasting, you are reaching a younger audience. Um, I'm, I'm an old millennial. Um, but so our generation has grown up with making fast media. Like, I don't know, I just sometimes just make stuff because it's fun. Like, oh yeah, check out this little little thing. And they're like, what are you gonna use it for? I'm like, I don't know, send it to you for a text message? <laughs> I don't know. Like I make entire snap stories and I'm like, I don't know, it's gonna disappear tomorrow. <laughs> but the point is that, that like, so this younger audience is used to content that is rich like that. And we can make it and we can make it fast because we've grown up with it like that. And when you're trying to reach new audiences, that's what you're doing with this podcast. So you're including, you know, this eight multi-track thing and lots of lots of different ways to engage with an audience. What you're doing is reaching a new audience and making your public radio station sustainable in the future. You're also diversifying it like crazy, and that's an awesome thing too. I will also say that one of the things I have learned from doing our podcast that I hadn't thought about before was like patience with bad tape can be mm. awesome. Like that courtroom mm -hmm. tape, that's bad tape. Like in, <laughs> in terms of tape quality. And if you're at a city council meeting, I don't know what your city council meetings are like. <laughs> but the tape quality, not good. So like on a podcast, people are often in headphones. You can get away with something in a broadcast. This is one area where I'll say there is a dichotomy. You mm -hmm. can get away with tape that's a little bit more low. And I think that it actually adds texture. So let's not yeah. be afraid of tape that's not... Pristine. Sometimes yeah. I like bad tape sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do too. <laughs> I talk a lot about like raw podcasting. It's like you know, some, some raw. It's like we want like grungy type. Like you know, we just want it to be like. Ah. I think <laughs> that we are. I think <laughs> no. I think that's right. And I think we're actually at KUOW still figuring out how to be comfortable with bad tape and how to be comfortable with a little bit of raw in our podcasting space because you know it's it can be really easy to just transfer the skills that you took or that you built up making these beautiful, shiny gem features with perfect tape um, and edits that nobody can hear. Um, and then just translate that into like a 30 minute long thing. We talked about sustainability earlier. You notice I have my hands and fists. I'll just tell you that's not sustainable. I'm relaxed, I'm fine. I'm totally calm, I'm fine. <laughs> 
Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Third Coast Pocket Conference. You can find a full transcript, thanks to Descript, by visiting our website or by clicking the link in the show notes. If you haven't already signed up for producer news, go to thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. We'll have weekly updates, resources, and more. Seriously, you won't want to miss these. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is produced by me, Isabel Vasquez. The executive director of Third Coast is Johanna Zorn. And Third Coast is also Maya Goldberg-Safer, Emily Kennedy, Gwen Maxi, and Rebecca Silverman. We'll be back next week with another session from the 2018 Third Coast Conference. But in the meantime, you can always check out the extensive library of audio stories on our website. Or download our other podcast, ReSound. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.